It's a beautiful day to be together, and a beautiful Mother's Day, and we want to take a moment to thank all of our mothers, all those who have been mothers to many of us. Uh, everybody has multiple people, or, or a lot of people have multiple people in their life that have impacted them in that way, and so we want to honor all of those this day. And also be mindful that there are those who this is a hard day for. Uh, maybe you've lost your mother. Maybe you didn't have a very good relationship with your mother. Or maybe you were a mother, uh, still are a mother, but, but you've lost a child. Or maybe you've always wanted to be a mother and you're not. Um, to all of those who struggle on days like this, we see you too and we love you. And God loves you. And, uh, but, but this is a day to celebrate our mothers. And I typically don't do... Um, theme sermons on days like Father's and Mother's Day, um, just kind of not my thing. Uh, I, like, I like it when our focus is on Jesus, and so we're going to keep our focus on Jesus. And I think there's plenty in Scripture about motherhood, parenthood, fatherhood, and, and things to be considered, but uh, we're going to keep it about Jesus today, if that's all right. And we're going to look at this very interesting verse that Christians just read for us, or this, this passage of verses that Christian just read for us because we do a very curious thing when we read the Bible. And we do a very curious thing when we read particularly the New Testament and the Gospels. And that is we read it like we would read any other book. We read it like we would read a narrative story. And that means we've got to have protagonists and we've got to have antagonists. And that means we've got to have good guys and bad guys and plot points and climax and all of those things you learn about in, in literature. And sometimes we assign labels to different groups or people that aren't really the full story of who they are. And one group that this is especially true of would be the religious elite that we find in the Gospels. The first century religious elite. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers, the rabbis, the high priests. Those who Jesus had conflict with. We naturally read the gospel and say, well, Jesus is the good guy. And that means that all of these people that he's upsetting, they must be the bad guys in the story. There's not really good guys and bad guys in the gospel. It doesn't read like a fictional narrative that we would pull off the shelf at a library. It reads like a story of God's son and what he was revealing to the people around him. Now, did that create conflict? Did that upset the religious elite? Certainly. But we have to understand a little bit about the context of these interactions and these groups of people to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage that we've just read. Because if you're looking at good guys and bad guys, then it would be very, very confusing when you run upon verse 20 and Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if they were the bad guys, why are they held up as the standard to which we must meet in order to dwell with God when our life ends? That's a troubling verse. Well, we have to first understand the context of this statement. And we have to back up a little bit and see what Jesus is revealing about the law. It's a much broader thing than just the Pharisees and the scribes and how Jesus saw them or how we see them. It's a broader discussion about what role the law, and we're talking about the law of Moses, has in our life today, or it, as it had in the life of those to whom Jesus was speaking. 
We know the verse very well that comes earlier in this passage. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That's absolutely true. We know that Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice that is demanded by the law. We know that he fulfilled all righteousness. We know that it was part of God's plan from the beginning that he would be sacrificed on behalf of the world to rid the world and rid us of sin and death. And he did that. He wasn't undoing something that was already done. He was meeting the requirements of it on our behalf. I think we understand that if we've read the New Testament enough, if you've studied things like the book of Hebrews or Romans or, or, or any of the letters that Paul writes and even James, we see that theme pretty clearly. But if, if we want to understand this passage, we need to understand the context further in which Jesus is speaking. Look back, because we want, to, we want to ask ourselves, why is he saying this, right? Why does verse 17 happen? And why does what comes after it happen? Well, go back to what he was saying just before that. He's talking about this concept of the light of the world, that we as, as followers of him, we're, we're beacons to the rest of the world. We have something to offer the rest of the world. We're difference makers. We're impactful because we have the gospel. So he's talking about salt of the earth, light of the world. <clears throat> and then Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This passage that happens previously at the beginning uh, of what Jesus is saying that we're now considering he is calling them to be different from the world. He is calling those who hear him to stand out, to live as people who are called, to not look like everybody else and not act like everybody else. He is calling them to a different way of life, to let their light shine and let their good works be seen. And so when he begins in verse 17 to, to say, don't think that I've come to get rid of all of this requirement. He's reminding them, I've come to provide a new way. I've come to open the door to heaven. I've come to give you a meaningful relationship with God the Father. And I want you to live like it. I want you to look different. I want you to speak differently and act differently, not as people who are trying to attain a certain level of obedience, but as people who have been declared righteous and obey as a result. And then verse 17, hey, it's almost like he's, he said this about letting your light shine, and then he steps aside and says, I hope you're not misunderstanding and thinking that I'm undoing the requirements of the law. Jesus didn't undo a single requirement that God laid in the law. Now, I know, I know, I know we didn't make a sacrifice this morning on an altar. I had bacon last night. To say that the, the law hasn't been undone, that's confusing because we don't, we, don't really, we don't go back and look through Leviticus to see what we should wear every day. We don't keep the law in the same way, but it's not because God or Jesus did away with it. It's because Jesus fulfilled it and made those requirements now no longer necessary. Once something's completed, it's done. There was a time when I used to stay up late and study for exams and review my notes. Well, who am I kidding? I didn't take notes. But I, but I used to try really hard to make good grades. Uh, it's interesting to look at my college transcript 
uh, which I happened to run across late, uh, recently, and to see, um, see, that's an important letter actually in my college transcript, uh, but it's important to, to notice, uh, you, can, you can tell when I started dating Nikki, because the, grade, the grades just plummeted, but, and at Harding, right, the, the men and women live separately, and so time to get, and there's curfew, and so time together is kind of precious. You have to, so the time when I should have been studying, we were out dating. And, and then you can see the very moment when we got married because, because my GPA began to go up a little bit. And then you can see the moment where we had a baby. I was still in college. And then I was like road scholar all of a sudden because I had to feed people and take care of them, right? Uh, I don't live like that now. I mean, I still care about my family and I work hard for them, but I don't, don't study anything or prepare for exams because why? I finished my degree. I completed the course of study. The requirements for graduation were fulfilled. And now I don't have to live like a student anymore. I have to live like a graduate. And that's different. We graduated from the old law because the requirements were fulfilled. So when Jesus reminds them, hey, you need to be doing good works. You need to be living for the Father. You need to look and sound different than the world around you. And then he steps into verse 17 and says, you don't need to be misunderstanding me and think that this new liberty I'm offering you is an excuse to not continue in doing the good works of the Lord. He's reminding them that this newfound liberty in Christ is not going to be an excuse to lay aside the requirement to do good in this world, to obey. That's the message of Jesus in verse 17. I'm not undoing what is bound on you as a requirement before God. Verse 18, he continues, Truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's a confusing verse because there's two sort of qualifiers. Until heaven and earth pass away and then until all is accomplished. So which is it? <clears throat> that can be a confusing thing. And, and I've seen discussions about, is this literal? Is this what? Okay, let's understand the language and understand how the words would have worked as those who heard it for the first time were hearing it. The expression, until heaven and earth pass away, uh, would have been a common expression of the time meant to say, there's pretty much no way it's not going to happen. Okay. For instance, if I were to say, well, unless the world comes to an end, I intend to eat dinner tonight, okay? All of my, I know, I know Lily, all of my illustrations are about food, but bear with me. Uh, I, I might, she's laughing and I know why. Um, I might say until the world comes to an end, or unless the world comes to an end, I intend to eat dinner tonight, right? Now, could the world literally come to an end between now and dinner time? Yeah, sure, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is, there's pretty much nothing that's going to stop me from having dinner. There's nothing that's going to get in the way of my plan to have dinner. When Jesus says that, he is saying, until heaven and earth pass away, a common expression to mean, this is going to happen. Okay, what, what he's describing is going to happen. And what he's describing is that um, the law's not going anywhere. Unless the world comes to an end, the law still exists. 
And nothing about the requirements of the law is going to go away, be reduced, be diminished, be destroyed, or be put away. The requirements of the law, and understand the difference between the practice of the law and the requirements of the law, but the requirements of the law shall not pass away. Until when? Until everything's accomplished. Until the job's finished. And what is the accomplishment of everything? What is Jesus referring to? His death, his burial, his resurrection. His completion of the law. He's saying there's not a power in this world that can change what the law requires of people in order to have a relationship with God, and it's going to stay that way until I finish it. Until I end it until I complete it and perfect it and give it to you. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, if, if anybody is telling you that this doesn't matter or if anybody tells you that this law doesn't matter, you don't have to follow this one, anybody annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's just emphasizing that the law still matters. That nothing is going to change the nature of God and man except Christ. And even then, the nature hasn't changed. The practice has changed. Like I said, we didn't offer a burnt offering this morning, did we? No. I got a pot roast at home. It might be by the time we get there. But so far, it's not a burnt offering yet. No, we, we didn't do that. We, we, we didn't make sure to wear certain fabrics we didn't adjust our diet we didn't we didn't do many of the things found in the old law we don't have a high priest our worship looks completely different than it would have under the old law and yet we have a relationship with god so how is it possible in light of verses 17 through 20 for that to take place if jesus says hey this isn't going anywhere we have to understand the difference between practice the practice of the law and the nature of the law, the requirement of the law. See, God is the same today as he was in the beginning. People talk about, well, the God of the Old Testament, this wrathful, vengeful God full of judgment and fire, and this God of the New Testament full of grace and love and mercy. Maybe the narrative feels full of wrath and vengeance and judgment from Genesis to Malachi, and maybe the narrative of Matthew through Revelation feels like love and mercy and grace. And maybe that's the emphasis, but the God behind it all didn't change. God requires obedience, perfection to be associated with him. And absent that, there's got to be some blood coming into the picture somewhere to make up for that. That was the old law. Well, what happened in the new law? Did God just define deviancy down and change his requirement? Certainly not. He provided Christ. If God could just arbitrarily change his requirement and his nature and say, well, I'll just accept you anyway, that's okay, we'll let you in, well, then why did he send Jesus? If he could just suddenly decide he wanted to accept all of us as we are, then he murdered his son for no reason. But God didn't do that. God required Christ to be the sacrifice in order that that law could still, that nature could still be fulfilled. You see, the old law was just a manifestation of the nature of God to begin with. And Jesus now is a manifestation 
of the nature of God. The bridge that we cross over to get to God. The means by which our relationship is deepened and strengthened and completed. And Jesus is reminding those he's speaking to, I want you to live like people who are different because God is not different just because I've come. God is the same. What he asks of you, what he requires of you, what he demands of you is the same. The way you do that is going to look different, but your liberty does not change your responsibility to obey and to seek after God and his will. And now, an interesting statement, verse 20, maybe the toughest. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and we could put in there the religious elite, the religious leaders of the time, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, wait a minute, okay. These are the brood of vipers, right? These are the people that Jesus talks about uh, going, going halfway around the world uh, to, to, to save someone and making them twice the son of hell that they are. It's pretty strong language Jesus uses about these people. They're the whitewashed tombs that he talks about. The pretty clean on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Why is he holding them up as this standard of righteousness? Well, when we read that, we see righteousness and Jesus saying, you've got to get where they are. But in context of what Jesus is talking about, and he's talking about a righteousness that comes differently now than it once did or than it, than it had in, under the old law. Remember, he's talking about meeting the requirements of God on the basis of faith in him. That's the message of Christ throughout. Read the Gospels, and what he tells his apostles over and over is, if you want to be with God, you've got to be with me. You've got to believe in me. If you have faith in me, you can be with the Father. That's what he says in his ministry. The New Testament writers reiterate that. They confirm that and they proclaim that. And here Jesus is saying that I am coming to finish the job. I am coming to complete this law. I'm coming to meet these requirements. And in doing so, I am going to give you access to a true righteousness. By virtue of your faith in me, you may have a home with God. But that liberty does not remove the responsibility to act like saved people. And now in light of that context, consider what he's saying. To understand verse 20, we've got to ask the question, what was the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes? Because Jesus seems pretty strong in his conviction that, that they've got some problems with how they are interacting with God. There's hypocrisy. There's a burden that they place on the people. There is uh, the self-serving attitudes. There's the elitism. What is it about them that's righteous? Well, don't look at it as the label righteousness as something to attain. He's talking about righteousness as they define it. And remember, when we look back on Scripture, we see it through our eyes, and we understand what righteousness means. But what righteousness meant to them was different. Righteousness to them meant keeping the letter of the law. So when Jesus says, you've got to have a righteousness that's greater than their righteousness. 
They're defining that based on keeping the law. And because these people were in positions of authority and of law keeping and of law declaring, they were the most righteous by that definition. Jesus says, you've got to find a righteousness that's greater than their righteousness. What's their righteousness then? Well, their righteousness is one of merit and obedience. It's one of keeping the letter of requirement. Their righteousness is one of this spiritual one-upsmanship. Well, if you're going to keep the law to this degree, I'm going to go to this degree, and that makes me better than you. Their righteousness was self-centered. It was self-aggrandizing. And it was based on what? Completely on them. The righteousness of the old law was based on you and what you could do to please God. So Jesus says, your righteousness has to be better than the righteousness of meritocracy. Your righteousness has to be better than the righteousness of keeping the letter of a law. Your righteousness has to be better than the right... Bear in mind, the whitewashed tomb thing, looking clean on the outside was considered righteous. And Jesus says the inside matters too. Jesus is telling those that are hearing him in this sermon... Your righteousness has to be more than just outward cleanliness. Your righteousness has to start from within. Your righteousness has to be of faith, of belief, of surrender, and obedience. Jesus marries the two concepts in these four verses. He talks about prior to that being different than the world and then reminds them that the call to be different has always been a part of God's requirement of his people his desire for his people it's just that now we have access to a righteousness that exceeds the religious elite of jesus day we have a righteousness that is greater more profound and deeper and more attainable than a righteousness that comes simply by adherence to a set of rules does that mean we don't keep some standard of living on behalf of the Lord? Absolutely not. Jesus says as much. We continue to live as obedient people in the name of Jesus Christ. But we are not bound. We are not chained and we are not weighed down by our own humanity and weakness interfering with the righteousness and glory of God. When Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, he's absolutely 100% literally Correct. There's no secret message in there. There's no, no uh, weasel words about what he means. He means it. It's just a matter of how you define their righteousness. And their righteousness was based on themselves. You have to have a righteousness based on something greater than yourself. You have to have a righteousness based on the amazing grace of God demonstrated through the beautiful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No greater power has ever been known in this world. No greater love has ever been shown. And no greater access has ever been granted to an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe than through Christ alone. When we read the words of Jesus, sometimes it's easy to put it into a narrative structure. Pharisees weren't bad guys. They were just people who had through their culture and through their history and through their understanding, fallen into tunnel vision. 
about the law and about who God was. Don't let your understanding of Scripture create tunnel vision that prevents you from appreciating the amazing power of God to save. Because wherever you find yourself, whatever place you see yourself in life, how your relationship with other people is going, how your relationship with God is going, no matter how bad you think you've messed it up or how dire it seems to be, God can rescue you from that. He can wrap his arms around you because your righteousness isn't based on you. It's based on the fact that he created you and he loves you so much so that Jesus, who spoke these words, died for you. Don't think that you weren't worthy of that sacrifice. I can't think of a worse insult. When a God sends his son to be murdered on our behalf to say, oh no, it's not good enough for me. That's not enough. I, I'm, I'm too evil. I'm too bad. I'm too broken. I'm too lost. Don't diminish the sacrifice of Christ by seeing yourself as anything less than what God sees you. His child. The one he waits for. The one he yearns for. The one he chases after. And understand that you can have a righteousness that exceeds even the most respected religious figures of their day. Because you have a righteousness by faith through Jesus Christ. Take hold of it this morning. If you need to make a change in your life, do that. If you need prayers or you need to, to share that with, with our community, do that. Whatever you need this morning, we're here for you. And we love you. And God loves you. Let's stand together and sing.